Our text this morning is from Numbers, starting in chapter 23, verse 27, and going through chapter 24, verse 13. Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on every altar. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Then he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour bucket from he shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He has a strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. Then Balak's anger was aroused against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Now therefore flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact the Lord has kept you back from honor. So Balaam said to Balak, Did I not also speak to your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord to do good or bad of my own will. What the Lord says, that I must speak. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are your covenant people gathered together to worship and glorify your holy name. Would you pour out your spirit on us, fill our hearts with faith, and give us seeing eyes that we might truly see and know you. Please glorify yourself in our hearts and minds, and in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing on in this Advent series as we work through the prophecies of Balaam. And there's, there's four, ser- um, four sermons in this series, so we have the fourth prophecy uh, next week. But there's really basically three prophecies, and we're on the third prophecy right now. And then the fourth one is just kind of an extension or an addendum put on at the end of the third prophecy. But we'll hit that uh, next week. And, and, and at this point, um, we see that Balak is getting pretty frustrated with Balaam. He's, he's brought him to come and have him curse. He's paying him to curse his enemy, Israel. And twice already, he has gotten all, he's done all the preparations and everything. And then Balak, Balaam gets up there, and instead of cursing them, he blesses Israel. Um, clearly, Balak believes that the problem is that they're, they're simply doing it wrong. That, there, that there's, there's this way of arranging things, the, the seven altars, the rams, the, 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 the sacrifices, that there's some way of arranging it all that if he does it right, uh, if he puts in the right eye of Newt or something like that, that he can, he can make it so that Balaam will curse Israel. Um, Balak, if, if you think about it this way, Balak is a true entrepreneur and capitalist. 
he has a strong need. That is, he wants God to curse Israel. So surely if he has uh, the money, then the market should be able to find a way to respond to this need and give him what he wants. I've got a desire for something. I've got a ton of money. I'm going to put it out there. The market should be able to respond and give me uh, what I want. The trick is they just need to figure out the appropriate technique. They've got to get the mix right, and it, and it should work. And Balak seems to think that the key to the way this is arranged is um, what Balaam is looking at as he gives what is supposed to be a curse. So if you look at the beginning of um, the, the first curse, or attempt to curse, uh, chapter 22, verse 41. So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. So this is where he's going to make the sacrifice, and the thing that makes this a good place is standing there. He can see all of Israel sitting in front of him. And then he... he he tries to do his curse, and it comes out a blessing. So Balak adjusts, and he thinks, okay, maybe you shouldn't be looking at all of them. Maybe you need to be looking at something different when you do this. So if you look at 23, verse 13, then Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. Uh, you shall only see the outer part of them, and you shall not see them all. Curse uh, them for me from there. So I'm taking you to this place where you'll just see the edge of them. So you'll, you'll be able to look at them technically, but you won't be overpowered by whatever it is that's getting you. And so maybe then you'll be able to execute the curse. It doesn't work. And so now we're on the third try. And you look at um, chapter 23 still, verses 27 and 28. Then Balak said to Balaam, Please come, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse uh, them for me from there. Maybe this other place is somehow the place where you can get a curse out. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor that overlooks the wasteland. Now he's overlooking the wilderness. He's overlooking the wasteland, and he's hopeful that by looking at the desert, that's somehow a place that he can execute the curse from. Now when Balaam, in chapter 24, verse 1, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. So we see that up to this point, then Balaam also has been attempting to use some sort of sorcery. There's some sort of conjuring that Balaam is is um, using that he thinks he can he can do it this way and that will cause God uh, to curse uh, Israel. He had the belief that he could conjure God's actions and it was a matter of which mountain he sacrificed from, how he performed the sacrifices, whether he was looking at all or part of Israel. Whatever it was, he believed that he could conjure God's response. Uh, but in the verse, we see that his his realization that the will of God was fixed and he could not steer it. So Balak was thinking, third time's a charm, this one will work. Balaam has realized this isn't working and something is going on that is different than what I expected. And so in this instance, on the third try, <coughs> excuse me, Balaam does not attempt to conjure. He's, he's not trying to cast a spell on Israel as he had before. And he simply falls down and receives a vision from God. He could not conjure God. He could not steer God. He could only reveal what God's will revealed to him. And so at this point, he, he falls into a trance, essentially, I think, and, and where he witnesses what God has revealed, not what Balaam is attempting to conjure. Um, and and he's, he, this is the first time he's done this. He didn't do this the first two times. This is different. And, and in next week, uh, when, he, when he adds on a little bit more, he's going to do the same thing. He's going to fall into a trance, and he's going to reveal what God has revealed to him. And I think it's at this point that Balaam truly becomes a seer, 
Um, that is, one who sees. I, I know this is weird, but it wasn't until uh, not too long ago that I suddenly realized that the word seer is just the word see with an er on the end. It's somebody who sees. I don't know why that just kept, uh, I kept missing that. But Balaam is, he's described to us as a seer, one who sees. And what's funny is I think this is the moment at which he actually becomes a seer. He, he starts to actually see something that God is revealing to him. And the, in, the introduction of this section, I think, is really intense. Like verse, I'm in chapter 24 now, verses 3 and 4. It is really kind of intense. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. It's someone who's being knocked over by this vision and his, his eyes are, are like peeled open as this is revealed to him and it's, it's knocking him down and he's, he's saying, I'm the one who is, who is seeing this and, and is declaring it. I think it's, if you think about it though, it's actually a really ironic statement um, because if, you've, if we read this in context and um, the way that we're introduced to Balaam, remember, this is the guy who's riding a donkey and his donkey sees what he can't see. Um, his donkey, a, a dumb donkey, has to tell him what's in the road ahead. And Balaam himself cannot see it. And he's being rebuked by his donkey. And the donkey is letting him know what, an, what kind of idiot must you be when you can't see what even the donkey can see. And you have to have a donkey actually talk and let you know what's going on. Balaam is, is the joke in that, in that situation. He's the one who can't see. And then now all of a sudden he's declaring that he is the one who sees. And he sees because God is, is revealing this to him. Um, and, and it's not just, notice this, it's not just that his eyes are open. He doesn't just say, I have opened my eyes. He says, my eyes are opened. Um, this is something that has happened to him. He doesn't open his eyes. God has opened his eyes. Uh, he, God has reached down and kind of pulled his eyelids back to show him something that Balaam was not able to see. So we open our eyes uh, but his have been opened by another, all right? And, and, uh, and it's God that has revealed this to him. It, it's interesting, like in, in a lot of the rabbinic literature, this little section is like the height of slapstick comedy because, because of the irony of um, Balaam not being able to see and being rebuked by his donkey, and then all of a sudden him being declared as the one who sees. It, 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 the, the tension there is just kind of um, comedic. But there's something that's been given to him. Uh, it's not something that he had or that he caused. The Almighty has given him a vision. So what is it that he sees? Well, we, we keep going in, in chapter 24. Look at um, verses 5 through uh, the first half of verse 7. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. What is it that he sees? He sees Israel encamped according to her tribes. Go back to um, verse 2. Balaam raised his eyes. He saw Israel encamped according to their tribes. And that's when the Spirit comes upon him. So the thing, the vision that has blown him away, that, it, that has kind of melted his face here, is the vision of, it's just the sight of Israel set up in their tents. Like, just, just set up in their campground. And, th and that's it. He sees that, and, 
And, he, and he's in this ecstatic vision describing the, the beauty and the glory of that. Um, now, we know if you're reading in the book of Numbers, you go back to the beginning of Numbers, and in chapter 2 is where um, God gives to Moses the prescription of how Israel is supposed to camp. And there's a long, detailed description of, of how they're supposed to arrange themselves with uh, the tabernacle at the center and three tribes on each side, the Levites in the middle with the tabernacle. And, and it describes what, where each tribe is supposed to be. It gives you the numbers of the men in each tribe. And it's one of those sections that if you're just doing your Bible reading challenge or something like that, you're probably really tempted to skim over or skip over entirely because it becomes, it's just like um, really kind of boring logistics. Um, describing you camp here, you camp here, there's this many here, there's this many, this many there. And there's a long um, prescription for how it is that they're supposed to um, pack things together, how they're supposed to move, how they're supposed to unpack them, how they're supposed to set it all out when they, when they unpack and get everything arranged. And it can be a bit dull as it's just the basic logistics of, of how you set up camp. But it's crazy that that's what, um, that's what Balaam is looking at. And Balaam is blown away by the glory and the majesty and the splendor of it. What strikes you initially as boring is something that Balaam can't get his mind around and it terrifies him how glorious it is. Um, so I think it's a really striking thing that... The, that um, Balaam is just simply looking at how their tents are laid out. Verse 5, how lovely are your tents, all lined up like that. And, and if you are looking at that, you'll, you'll see that the imagery is the imagery of fruitfulness, um, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside. And you, you'll see this here, um, but you also see this throughout Scripture when God is conveying um, a person or people that are blessed with his Fruitfulness, when his blessing is on somebody and he is going to prosper them with his word, with his promises, the way he describes it is he describes it in terms of, of a plant or a garden, a field, a tree, cultivation of some sort that has this irrigation that supplies it and takes care of it so that it's really well watered. That is the, the image of what fruitfulness looks like. Think of Psalm 1. It's the man who's, or sorry, the, the blessed man is like a tree that's planted with water that's running it right there. And frequently, whenever we're, we're getting a description of God's, um, like a prophecy or a vision of blessedness, it's going to be a river with trees alongside it. And that river is watering those trees because they're taking care of. They're going to be, um, they're going to be nourished. They're going to be um, uh, properly watered, and they're going to grow and be really fruitful. They'll grow large. They'll have a huge crop of fruit, and they'll plant more and more uh, of these trees or plants or whatever. And so here you've got this valley, and you think of imagine this beautiful valley with a river running through the center of it, and just gardens all along the side of it, and all the water from the river pours into the gardens to make sure that they are watered. Like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. There's this seed, there's this descendant, this promise to Israel that is going to be in this, in this place situated that God is always watering it, right? The canals are always there, are always full and always taking care of it. So that imagery then is an imagery of incredible fruitfulness, abundance, this, this promise that they're going to be taken care of, they're going to grow, they're going to multiply, they're going to spread to fill the earth. 
Each image is a plant situated with water so that it can thrive. And that's what Israel is, a plant, an entire garden situated with the source of its life right there inside of it, right? That's, you've got that tabernacle right in the center of them laying out and, and they are taken care of. So Balaam sees that Israel will be fruitful and will be multiplied. You also see um, in the second half of verse 7, and his, his king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. Balaam saw that Israel was going to have a king. And it's interesting because right now they don't have a king right now. They, they, have, they have Moses, and they're not going to have a king for some time. They're going to have judges for a good bit. But, but um, Balaam can see that Israel has inside of it a line that is going to produce uh, this king. Now, now, kings were promised to Israel. If you go all the way back to Genesis 17, in the beginning, when, when God is first giving his, his covenant promises to Abraham, one of the promise he gives is that you're going to have a line of kings descend from you. Uh, Genesis 17, 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Okay, it's a fruitful nation. And I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. There it's plural. There's going to be a line of kings that comes from, from Abraham that, that, that rules in Israel. Um, but in Balaam's vision, he sees that this line of kings is going to culminate in a single king, and that single king is going to be a high king, a king above all kings. This is, um, in the next prophecy, this is going to focus more and more on who this king is, and you'll see then why it is that this is actually an Advent series. But here, it's, it's still a little bit dim, but it, it, he says, there's, there's not just a line of kings in this nation that I see out there in their tents. I can see that there's a single king that's coming from this line, and this king will be a high king. He says that he's going to be, um, his king should be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Why Agag? What does Agag have to do with this? Agag is the king of the, uh, of the nation of Amalek. Um, and I think there's, there's a strong argument to be made that, um, that the name Agag is a, um, it, it's like a title. It, it's a personal name possibly, but also maybe a title for the position. So Pharaoh is the king of Egypt is called Pharaoh. Uh, Caesar, uh, it's, a, it's a guy, but it's also becomes the title if you're over all of Rome. So there's an argument that Agag is a, is a guy, but it becomes a king, the, the name of whoever is the king of uh, the Amalekites. And the prophecy here is that the king of, uh, that descends from Israel is going to be higher than Agag. Now, the Amalekites were the first nation to attack the Israelites after the Exodus. Um, it, it, it's just after they had just made it through uh, the crossing of the Red Sea. They got out of Egypt. They make it through the crossing of the Red Sea. And immediately, the Amalekites see this nation coming, and they attack them. They, they, and, and so they're getting them at their most vulnerable. Um, it was probably when Israel is at its weakest and most vulnerable. And so uh, Amalek sees and takes advantage of the moment and attacks them. And this is that battle where, if you remember, where Moses has to keep his hands up throughout the whole battle, and Aaron and his son help him to hold his arms up through the battle. Joshua is out leading the troops in the battle against the Malachites, and, and Moses is above with his, his hands up. Uh, they win, and then there's this curse that is uh, pronounced uh, against um, 
against the Amalekites. Exodus uh, 17, sorry, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So this is Israel's first enemy as they come into the promised land. It's an enemy that attacked them at their weakest and most vulnerable, and it's their first battle and victory. And God says, this battle is one that's going to last a while, and I'm going to give you the victory in it. And you'll see, if you keep an eye out, if you just look for descendants of Amalek or the Amalekites, you'll see that they continue to pop up in Israel's history again and again. They're kind of this old arch rival. Saul has to fight them. It's uh, Samuel that, that uh, kills an Agag, hacks him to pieces. Uh, David has to fight the Amalekites. And then even keep going a long ways down the road, um, Esther, in the book of Esther, Haman, the enemy of Israel that's trying to persecute the Israelites, we're told that Haman is an Agagite. Uh, so this is, this is like the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent that is continuing on throughout um, Scripture. And, and God reveals through uh, Balaam here that he's sending a king to Israel, and this king will triumph over uh, Agag, over the Amalekites. He will have that victory. And he says he's going to be higher than Agag. And there's a good little Hebrew pun there, because in Hebrew, the name Agag means high. So it's, it's kind of in his name, I'm the high king, because I'm the Agag. And, uh, but Balaam says here, there's a higher king still. There's one that will be even over him. And he's coming, and Balaam gets this glimpse of him as he's looking at this um, sea of tents out before him. The Israelites all uh, camped according to their order. So Balaam sees this. He's knocked over by it. But if you think about it, I think it's really kind of funny because if you think of the Israelites lined up according to the arrangement that God gave them, given what we know about the Israelites in the wilderness, what are the odds that, um, that if you were down there in one of the tents at this moment, that what you heard all around you was, isn't this awesome? Aren't we glorious? Aren't we magnificent at this moment? Uh, like we, we know from, if you're reading the rest of uh, Numbers, we know that, that this, is, this is Israel grumbling in the wilderness. This is a whole long period of time of people saying, complaining, and feeling like they were not being set up in the most luxurious of stations. We know that when they, when they moved out, they're always supposed to move out in a very particular order. Judah's always supposed to be front, and Nashon, who's the head of the tribe of Judah, is the man who's always supposed to lead Judah, so Nashon always gets to go first. So it's, it's uh, generally inferred that when the waters parted, it was Nashon who was first stepping in, and he's always the one who gets to be out front. Can you imagine how many Israelites by this time are kind of sick of Nashon and, and how he always gets to be first? Or, or um, you've got the whole, um, you've got the whole, the, all the order of the, um, where everybody's supposed to be camped, laying, laid out. And how many people were happy with where they were placed? I remember, I remember once when, um, at, at NSA, I remember once uh, a, a wise old man telling me we were trying to sort out offices, and, and he, he mentioned, he said, I've never seen hostility provoked more than in the assignment of offices. 
Like, it's, it's just crazy how, how meaningful and significant um, peculiar little spatial things um, suddenly become and everything seems like some sort of passive-aggressive move or, or disrespecting of somebody. And I, and I have to imagine at this moment, as you're laid out according to the, this arrangement they were given, that people were not all super pleasant with one another. Uh, we, we know that there was all this grumbling and complaining. And, and I suspect that a good bit of it was actually uh, produced by this arrangement. And yet, here is Balaam looking at this arrangement, looking at them laid out, and blown away by it. I mean, he, he can't stand the, the glory of what it is that he is seeing. If you were an Israelite sitting in the camp, most likely what you saw were a lot of reasons to complain. But what God showed Balaam was glorious. So so Balaam sees this. And and also he sees that Israel is on the advance. He sees the power that is is there. Look at um, verses 8 and 9. Uh, God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The two images here, the wild ox and the lion. The wild ox, the Hebrew there, the word is the word that for a long time was translated as unicorn. And uh, for some reason, our translators get embarrassed by that, that word. But I think that that is what they had in mind. The unicorn, this fierce and terrifying beast, matched with the lion, this thing that in the, in the desert, if a lion gets you, you're just done. Uh, you imagine being a man out by yourself in the wilderness and coming across a lion. If that lion wants to eat you, what, what chance do you have, right? And he says, Israel is the unicorn. Israel is the lion. These two creatures that cannot be tamed, that cannot be, um, that cannot be captured and turned to do our work for us, that they are going to destroy you. They are after you. And that's how Balaam sees Israel. He's terrified of them. And then, and then in verse 9, he gives them this. The second half of verse 9. Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. That's how he ends the prophecy. Blessed is he who blesses you, cursed is he who curses you. It's really interesting that he goes there because when Balak first reached out to Balaam, when, when Balak um, first is trying to find somebody that can do this cursing job for him, um, Balak thought that that's what, this is what Balaam was. If you look at um, chapter 22, verse 6, he sends his men to uh, Balak or to Balaam, and and this is the the word he says. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he whom you curse is cursed. Balaam, Balak thought that Balaam was the man who could bless and curse efficaciously. I curse you, you're cursed. I bless you, you're blessed. He thought that that was the power that Balaam had, and I have to think that Balaam thought he had that power. He took the job, he looked like he thought he was able to bring about these kinds of results. They thought that they had that. And in this moment, when his eyelids are peeled back by the God who opened his eyes for a moment, he sees that the one he thought he was, this is actually fulfilled in Israel. Israel is the one who, when Israel blesses, 
the blessing happens. When Israel curses, the cursing happens. You look back to Genesis 12. This was the promise that was given to Abraham. And this is at the very beginning, our introduction to Abraham, Abram at, at this moment. It's the very first words that God says to him. Get up out of your country. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. This is Genesis 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was given in the covenant to Abraham, and it was passed down to Israel. Israel was the one who had this right, this power to bless and his power to curse. So this this is Balaam's third failed effort at cursing Israel, and Balak is pretty sick of it. And basically, he fires him. Uh, in verses 10 and 11, he says, uh, I called you to curse my enemies, and look, you have bountifully blessed them these three times. Now, therefore, flee to your place. I said I would greatly honor you, but in fact, the Lord has kept you back from honor. Right? You, I was going to bless you. I was going to honor you. I was going to take care of you. But you didn't do it. And Balaam says, I didn't do it because God wouldn't let me. And, and then Balaam says, that's fine. God has ripped you off, right? God has withheld you from honor. You don't get the good stuff that I was going to give to you. If you look back in, in 22.7, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. They came with a pot of gold. So they come with this big, huge payment, and, they, and this is what you're going to get if you will do this. And then Balaam has been unable to affect a curse. And so Balak says, no money for you. I'm taking it away. And I guess, you know, you're saying that it's God's fault. That's fine. It's God's fault. You're not getting paid. And God has withheld this great glory from you that I was going to give you. Balak is walking away with the money that Balaam will no longer receive. But what we are learning in this passage is that it really depends on whether or not you can truly see. I mean, have, whether you can see is the, 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 um, the question throughout these chapters. Who sees? What does it mean to see? What, what, it, what does it mean to actually have your eyes open? Balaam described himself as the one whose eyes are open. I'm the one who sees, the one, uh, the, the one whose eyes are open, the one who sees it all. But Balaam is, I think this is the striking revelation, is that Balaam is basically equal to his donkey, right? Balaam is the donkey. They're kind of the same thing. The donkey stands for Balaam. And what I mean by that is when, when the donkey speaks to Balaam, what happens? It's a dumb beast who suddenly has its eyes opened by God and is able to speak words that a vision that he has no right to to um, to have seen words that the donkey himself would not have understand. He's just a dumb animal who's who's speaking this message. Well, here is this prophecy. This prophecy that we'll see next week culminates in the messianic vision, the seeing of Christ, and it's put into the mouth of this pagan uh, um, prophet who does not know God, who does not actually see God. His eyes are open and he sees. And his seeing is just like the donkey's talking, right? It's not something that he actually understood. <clears throat> so Balaam describes himself as the one whose eyes are open, but he's, he is the donkey. Um, in the world that Balaam and Balak inhabit, the money that Balak had given to Balaam was the great honor, 
right? That was, that was the great honor, and Balaam has lost it. Balaam, there was a pot of gold right there, a literal pot of gold. It was there for the taking, and, and he can't have it. He misses it, and he misses it because God has withheld it from him. Um, the, and if you think about it that way, they, there, is, there, is a, there is a fleshly glory, right? There, there's a fleshly glory. There's, there's a world that, according to our natural eyes, we see. And that pot of gold is, lives in that world of fleshly glory. It's the glory that's all around us. It's the glory that we can envy in our weakness in your flesh. It's the glory of, of power and wealth and splendor and fame in the world all around us. There's this fleshly glory. But what was happening was God was revealing in Israel a far greater glory. He was revealing in Israel this glory that, that they did not see with natural eyes. They had to have their eyes peeled open in order to see it. And I think this, this parallels a little bit the, the message that you heard uh, last week. If you remember in, um, in, in his second um, prophecy, I mean, verse 21, he says this. He, referring to God, Balaam says, God has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. God looks at Israel and he doesn't see the sin. I just described it. at this moment in the book of Numbers, Israel is full of all kinds of failure and complaining and whining and moaning and betrayal. and all, There's all kinds of failures in Israel. And then Balaam says that God is looking at them right now and he doesn't see iniquity. He doesn't see iniquity. He doesn't see their sin. He, he doesn't see um, any of that. How can God say that about Israel? It's Israel in the wilderness. This is the, if you want to like rebuke your children for being whiny or complaining or fussy, you take them to the book of Numbers and the example of Israel during this moment. How can God look at this and say, that I don't see any iniquity there? How can he say this about Israel? But God sees them differently because he sees them through his covenant with them. When he opens Balaam's eyes and gives him a view of Israel, he shows Balaam what Israel looked like, looks like clothed in his covenant. Remember, so just again, Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And again, Genesis 17, and this is, there's a few different times in Genesis where this covenant is unpacked a little bit more. But listen to, starting in verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the promise that is given to Israel going back centuries before to their ancestor Abraham. And this is how God sees them. He sees them through his covenant. He sees his covenant fulfilled in them because that's what his covenant does. And this is how God reveals them to Balaam. Balaam is giving a glimpse of Israel 
viewed through his covenant uh, to Balaam. They'll be a fruitful nation, growing in numbers to fill the world. They will be led by a line of kings culminating in a single great high king over all kings. They will have the promise that those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. This is what Balaam saw in Israel and in the formation of Israel's tents, even if Israel did not see it in themselves. And this is the thing, is learning to see with eyes that are shaped and informed by the covenant. It's, it's, it's something that changes your view of everything. And learning to see the world and especially learning to see God's people through covenant eyes is so important to understand the glory of what God is revealing. Last week, there was a real emphasis on the fact that God does not see our iniquity because he has imputed his righteousness to us in this covenant. And so you, you have, we look, we can set our sin aside because we know that in that covenant view, he does not see that iniquity. But there's more than that. There is this glory to what he sees. There's this wealth that he is pouring out on his people that is yours when you are in that covenant. And, and so we need to learn to see God's people through these covenant eyes. And I want to be careful here because it's really important that you not somehow transform this into some sort of silly believe in yourself even when nobody else kind of message. Um, so, so it's not believe in yourself even when nobody else will. You know, Israel, you know, they were kind of hard on themselves, but they just, if they just believed in themselves, they would see that they were going to end up be the little kid who, who, who makes good. It's not that message at all. Right, because they really truly were a mess. They, they really truly were all kinds of sinful. They really were a problem. What makes them different is not a, a, a confidence in yourself or a confident, you know, like an eternal sort of optimistic um, sort of uh, slant of mind. What what changes it is God's covenant on them, His promise to them, and the ability to see that God has declared something about them that they are receiving by faith. You don't believe in yourself; you believe in the promises of God. And it's the covenant of God that sets you apart and that gives you this blessing. You have to have eyes that see that promise and that set their hope there. That's where your hope is. You have the fleshly glory, but then you have this covenant glory that is revealed with spiritual vision, which is what faith is. You want to set your eyes there. Without those eyes, following God does not make sense. And, and, and this is the thing I, I want to really emphasize. Without that kind of vision, following God does not make sense. Balak had a point, a real, true, uh, and um, compelling point. When he tells Balaam, God has held you back. The Lord has ripped you off. Right? The fact that he has not allowed you to curse them means you're getting ripped off because this pot of gold is leaving and it's not going into your pockets. Right? He has a real true point. He's not going to get paid because he doesn't curse them. Now, we do know that afterwards he comes up with a new plan, and I wonder if he may have figured out how to get paid for that one. But that's, that's down the road. Right now, he's, he's going to see that money walking out the door, and he's not going to get uh, paid. And I would argue that the, the same thing is true for you. The same thing is true for each of you. The Lord has kept you back, right? You have been ripped off. There are a whole bunch of things you don't get because you are following Christ. Um, here, here, here's an example. Um, if, you're, if you're a faithful Christian, you should be tithing. That's, that, that's an expectation. You should be tithing. A tenth of your salary, you should be tithing. But let's, let's say, let's, say you, you, let, let's think about that for a moment. A, a tenth of your salary 
If we're to go back just 10 years, how much does that add up to? How, how much have you just thrown away? The Lord has held you back, right? There, how, how, what could you have done with that money? Is there a second mortgage there? A second house that you could have had? The uh, Lord has held you back. Or, or, or imagine this. What if over the last 10 years, every single check that instead of tithing, what if you just put that in Bitcoin? Where would you be now? <laughs> Not in North Idaho, right? You would be on a beach somewhere, right? Sipping something with those little umbrella, you know, things in them. Okay, you would not be here. The Lord has held you back. And I'm not making that up. That's money. That's real money. Your commitment to Christian education. What if all of that tuition, what if all of that money, you, what if all of that time that you put into that, what if you saved that, put your kids in the public school, and again, put that money in Bitcoin or whatever, whatever is the new thing. What could, where would you be now? That's a real pot of money. It is. And the Lord is keeping you back. What parties have you missed since you came to Christ? Right? Throughout your life, what parties did you want to go to where you like, I really would like to be there. I also, as a Christian, know that that's a problem with me that I have to confess and I'm not going there. Right? What, what have you missed out on? What career paths have you missed out on um, because you were going to put Christ above all? What, what career opportunities were there that you had to say, I'm not going to take it, I'm going to walk away from it because I'm following Christ? What lifestyle choices have you passed by because you came to Christ? Some of them are ones that like you were offended by that even apart from being spiritual. You just didn't like it. But there are things, there are things that, that you know that, that outside of Christ, you would have been all in on that, right? And, and you're, you're, you're not. You're not because of your following Christ. The Lord has kept you back. You, we, can, we can make a clear argument that you have been ripped off because you've given yourself to Christ. And if you look at this with Balak's eyes, you have missed out. But if you look again through the covenant eyes that I'm describing, if you look through those eyes for a moment, you see something far more glorious. You see something that is, that is um, unspeakably powerful, something that made Balaam just quake. And, and, and fall apart because he was so blown away by the vision of it. You see something that makes kings tremble. Um, is it weird, okay, to make this like uh, personal, locally personal, is it weird that singing Christmas carols in this town can cause such unhinged paranoia in the local Amalekites, right? They're that, that just, that just getting together, lining up, bases over there on the north side of the tabernacle, you know, tenors over here, just, just arranging to sing and, and, and singing Christmas carols causes the, the town to fall apart. I mean, it really, really, um, everybody gets super angry. You need to understand that the people of God assembled together is actually a terrifying thing to the unbelieving heart. And so much of it can just feel like genealogies in the book of Numbers, right? We're reciting a creed that is giving us a very precise definition on the Christological nature and how, um, how, how Jesus is, is simultaneously the Son of God and the Son of Man. And there's all these like careful ways we have to craft how that goes together. 
Like, why are we sitting here reciting these, um, or going through the Heidelberg Catechism, walking through the liturgy, walking through our, our, our worship? We have this sort of set order that we're going through, and there's probably sin in your aisle as you're trying to keep everybody together, probably uh, griping and complaining maybe on the way to church as we're figuring it out. There's just a lot of logistics a lot of times. And we can just kind of be captivated by that and see that as the dominant thing that happened this morning. But you need to step back for a moment and understand that the assembled people of God, God's covenant people, when his covenant is on them, that's a terrifying thing. There's a reason why people around us are very scared. It's crazy to me the kind of um, strange stories that I hear about what's going on like in the Christchurch community and all this apparent wealth that we apparently have that we're swinging all around the place. And I know what's actually there, and I just wonder, like, where do you get this idea, this like, crazy conspiracies? If we had that kind of money, do you think that we wouldn't have had a church building by now? Um, and and, and we're, all we're doing is just singing psalms. Uh, we're, we're, we're taking the Lord's Supper. But from the outside, it looks terrifying. And here's the thing. It actually is terrifying. What is happening here actually is glorious. Now, they, try, they can't understand spiritual power, so they interpret in terms of fleshly power. They have to imagine all kinds of fleshly machinations. But what we're doing is something spiritual, which is actually far more terrifying, far more powerful, and far more glorious. And, but you have to have covenant eyes. You have to open your eyes to see what God is doing. And your neighbors aren't mad. They're not mad. for There are all these kinds of things that we try to kind of like um, smooth the edges to, to, to make peace and whatnot. Try to be as nice as possible. You try to smooth those edges. And, you, and it's surprising. Why doesn't this reconcile us? It doesn't reconcile us because you're in the covenant. And the covenant is terrifying. And you're not going to take that away. But what you are going to find is that the, the wealth and the glory that is attached to this covenant far outstrips all the things that you have been held back from. That pot of gold that you have missed, that, that Bitcoin account that you don't have, right? All of those things pale in comparison to what God is actually bringing you to. Your Bitcoin investment that you missed out on pales in comparison to the treasure that's stored up in heaven for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a glorious thing it is to be clothed by your covenant promises. Would you please open our eyes to see the great wealth of the inheritance that you have bestowed upon us. Give us eyes of faith. Give us believing hearts. Give us a deep and abiding confidence in the promises that are before us. We thank you for this great grace, and we pray now, as your Son taught us to pray, saying, This table is God's covenant promise to be with us. But that promise to be with us, to go with us, means that he intends to use us for great good as we trust in him. Jesus died and rose again in order to make all things new. And he poured out his spirit on his people who trust in him so that he might work through us. This is what God has been doing for the last 2,000 years. He's been working through ordinary men and ordinary women ordinary children who trust in him. Some of them had very long lives. Some of them had very short lives. Some of them we know about. Most of them we've never heard of. Some of them accomplished great things, but all of them did good things, like honor their parents, raise their children in the Lord, love their wives, respect their husbands, work hard, tell the truth, confess their sins, forgive one another. Our job is to be faithful and God promises to bless it. 
Our lives are seed meant to go into the ground and then become exceedingly fruitful, 30, 60, and 100-fold. And this is how God has determined to fill this world with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he must reign, Scripture says, until all of his enemies have been put beneath his feet. And the last enemy will be death itself. Jesus said that if he was lifted up on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. And so he was, and he is. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And having conquered sin and death and the devil, Jesus rose from the dead and sent his disciples into all the world to disciple the nations, to teach every city, every nation, every person to serve and obey King Jesus in everything. And this table is God's solemn covenant with us, that he has begun that great work and he will continue it until it is completely finished. So we're in the middle of the conquest of the land and the charge is to be strong and courageous. Don't lose hope now. Jesus has been conquering this world for the last 2,000 years. The darkness is on the run. The light has come. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you for this covenant promise to us, sealed in the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that that promise is reiterated to us now. Give us hearts of faith, ready to receive these promises and believe them with all our might, because we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been exhorted this morning uh, to put on covenant eyes, have covenantal eyes, to look at your life, to look at the church, to look at history through the eyes of God's promises to you and to his people. In Screwtape Letters, uh, Lewis actually um, points us out through the mouth of there's a senior demon who's giving instructions to this junior demon and, and says, you know, the, 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 the Christians, um, they're constantly worried about all the divisions in the church and all they can see is this ragtag bunch of people. And he says, just keep feeding them lots of that. Because if they could see what we can see, they would see that it's this glorious army stretching out to the ends with, uh, with banners unfurled. It, it's glorious. That's, that's what Christ has established. That's what the church is. That's what we're a part of. And that's why they're so scared. Do the same thing in your families, though. Look at the life around you. Look at it. And there's, there's things to f- fix. There's things to work on always. But have covenant eyes. Look with eyes of faith. You know, look at, look at, the, look at your car. It's got crackers all over it. I, I know, right? Why? Because, you, because the Lord kept you back from one pot of gold and he gave you a different gift. Lots of little people, right, who put crackers all over the floor. And you say, what is this thing, this messy piece of junk? No, it's not a messy piece of junk. It's a covenant assault vehicle, right? That's, that's what we're doing. We're trusting the Lord. We're walking with him. We're walking in the light because his blessing is on us. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself And God, even our Father, who hath loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope through his grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And amen.